Uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1. Um, Dale Lively was uh, strutting around here earlier this evening in a Sugar Bowl t-shirt on because uh, Dale is from Louisiana. and I had uh, told him that after the worship service tonight, we were just going to stand and receive the benediction. But uh, I've changed my mind about that. Dr. Young will be back in the pulpit, Lord willing, on Sunday, uh, returning from a, a little getaway with uh, Mrs. Young and um, not certain where he will be in terms of the scripture, but but he will be with us on Sunday. What would you suppose your greatest need would be? If you had to answer that question, if you could just imagine for just a moment, what is your greatest need in life? Um, we know what our aim is in life, according to the scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, says that our great end in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But what is your greatest need in life? Um, if you subscribe to Abraham uh, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, if you've ever heard of that, if you ever had a psychology test and took a look at that, you know that one of the immediate needs is of uh, physiological well-being, the need for, for air and food and safety and security, the need for belonging and a sense of loving, and those needs escalate right on up to a need for what he called self-actualization, the need to be creative, the need to be... Um, gainfully employed, engaged in life, what he called the need for self-transcendent. Well, lovely talk. If you um, look at New Year's resolutions, you'll know that most of the New Year's resolutions, in fact, the top ten, according to a survey by General Nutrition, this year the top ten is focused primarily on, um, on self. It's things like exercise, uh, diet, lose weight, get your financial house in order, organize your life, spend more time with family and friends, all of those. And I'm not minimizing those because those, those are important. Um, but most of those resolution kinds of things, again, are really focused on temporal issues of personal well-being and comfort. But when you come to Acts chapter 1 and you pose the question, what is our greatest need? I think Christ answers in part that question in verses um, 4 through 8 in the opening chapter. Let me give you a little bit of the context And in order to do that, we probably ought to start in verse 1, but we're really going to spend a few minutes focusing uh, principally on verses 4 through 8. This is God's Word, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I uh, would submit to you this evening that according to the, the witness of Christ here, according to the words of Christ, Our greatest need is met by the Holy Spirit himself. 
one of our, our greatest needs in terms of God's people collectively, as well as individually being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to experience the presence and power of God through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to make three observations from the text this evening that I, that I think go a long way in supporting that. And the first observation that I'd make this evening from the passage we've read is found in uh, verse 4. Our greatest need is met by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit according to the command of Christ. If you notice in verse 4, it's a very clear command. Wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. If you know something about the, the, uh, the progress of time here, this is a, another post-resurrection appearance of Christ. We read in the opening verses that he appeared to them. There are ten recorded appearances, post-resurrection appearances of Christ. And here in Acts chapter 1, it says that he showed himself or revealed himself to be alive by many. The New American Standard Bible says convincing proofs. And your translation may say infallible proofs. But Jesus appeared to them on numerous occasions. The first occasion in which he appeared to them is in Luke 24. They were cowering behind locked doors on the brink of despair and, and uh, dejection, discouragement, because Christ had been crucified. They thought all of their hopes had ended with the crucifixion of Jesus. And behind the locked doors in Jerusalem, suddenly Christ appears. And Luke 24 says they thought they had seen a spirit. They were so startled by the appearance of Christ. They did not expect this. And he said... Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And then he asked them for something to eat. And so here is one of the the final accounts, if not the final account, of Jesus' post-resurrection appearance to the disciples. And he again admonishes them, commands them to wait in, in Jerusalem until they receive power from on high. This is the way Luke 24 says it. Jesus tells them to wait until Jerusalem until they are clothed with power from on high. Such was the need for the Holy Spirit's presence and power in the lives of the early disciples that it was absolutely imperative that they not do anything else until they had been empowered with the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. John chapter 14, in fact, if you want to hold your place there and turn with me over to John chapter 14 for just a moment. Uh, This is part of what's called the Upper Room Discourse. This is the night of our Lord's betrayal. He has bathed the feet of the disciples, including Judas. He has um, given very uh, specific instruction about a new commandment that you love one another in John 13. And then in John chapter 14, he promises a a prepared place for them, for all who love Christ. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and someday I'm going to return, that where I am, there you may be also. And then in verse 16, notice that Jesus says this. He says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may abide with you, or that He may be with you forever, that is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him, But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you comfortless or orphans. I will come to you. And Jesus would come to them again through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But notice in in, uh, his promise to the disciples in John 14, 16, 
He says, I will pray the Father and He will give you another. In the Greek text, there are two words that are translated in our English translations by this word another. One of the words that's translated in our English text um, by the word another is the word heteros, heterosexual. Um, someone of a different kind, a different sex. Uh, another word that's translated in our English text by the word another is the word alos, A-L-L-O-S. And it means another of the same kind. And what Jesus is saying, and this is the word that's used in John 14, verse 16, is I'm going to pray the Father that He will give you another helper, another comforter, parakletos, another just like me. Just like me. And in Acts chapter 1, He says, you wait until Jerusalem, until this other helper, this other comforter, just like me comes and fills your lives. If you'll turn back to Acts chapter 1, the command, I think, substantiates that one of the greatest needs in our lives is to experience the presence and power of God's Spirit. It was so imperative that he tells his disciples that you're not to leave Jerusalem until the fulfillment of this promise comes. The ministry of Christ continues today. Now, it's not in the dramatic proportions. In fact, um, John chapter 3, the end of John chapter 3, verse uh, 36, I believe, says that Christ was filled with the Spirit beyond measure. Uh, You and I are not Jesus. We never will be. We will not be Jesus in heaven. We may be finally conformed to His image and His likeness, but we will never be Jesus. But Acts chapter 1, if you notice um, in the opening verses, suggests uh, verse uh, 2, for example, um, or verse 1, rather, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. You notice the little word, the little verb there, began? It suggests that the ministry of Christ continues. And it does continue. It continues through the ministry of the church that bears Christ's name. The ministry of teaching God's Word. The ministry of Christ continues. And how does it continue? It continues through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Christ, seated by God's right hand in the position of highest honor, ruling and reigning, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, until all the, all the, uh, the enemies of God and all the enemies of God people, God's people are subdued and, and brought under His feet. Ruling and reigning, He sends the presence and power of God's Spirit into our lives. I love Ephesians. For me, it's one of the greatest books of the Bible, written while Paul was incarcerated as an uncondemned prisoner of the Roman Empire. And he starts uh, Ephesians chapter 1 with a burst of praise. Blessed be God who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And then he talks about our election in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then he talks about God sending His Son to redeem us, that is, to make an atonement for our sins that You and I might be forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future. All of our sin, thought, word, and deed, that we might be clean and accepted before God because of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Ephesians 1.13, Paul moves from the electing work of God, the redeeming work of Christ, to the work of the Holy Spirit who seals us until the coming day of redemption. I'd suggest to you that the work of Christ, His sinless life, 
his substitutionary death, his resurrection, his ascension, and present intercession does not touch your life, affect your life, transform your life in any way whatsoever apart from the presence and power of God the Holy Spirit coming into our lives. All that Jesus has purchased for us, all that He had accomplished prior to Acts chapter 1, does not take place in your life or my life apart from the Holy Spirit applying the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I think one of the greatest needs that you and I have is to experience the presence and power of God's Spirit because that's the other side of the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I recognize the the flow of redemptive history. I recognize the unrepeatable flow of redemptive history. We're now in the 21st century. I don't think we're moving back uh, redemptively, theologically, spiritually, scripturally, back to the first century. I don't look for a return of that. I know that we've, we've moved past the days of the, the apostles and prophets, that they occupied a unique and uh, unrepeatable function in the church. Ephesians 2 says they're part of the foundation of the, the church, and, and Revelation 21 says they're part of the foundation of the, of the new Jerusalem and so on. I don't look for the return of the apostles. We've moved past that. But what I do know is that you and I have an abiding need, a daily abiding need to experience God's presence and power in our lives through the present and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1 to his disciples would also apply to us. And that is the the Spirit comes according to the promise and according to the prayer of the Holy Spirit. You know, Hebrews chapter 1 says that, that God in times past spoke to the fathers in different kinds of ways. He spoke, for example, to Abraham in a dream. He spoke to Moses through a burning bush. Uh, He spoke to uh, Daniel through visions. He spoke to Joshua through a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He says he spoke in time past to the fathers in different ways and at different times. But God in these last days has spoken unto us through His Son. I believe the canon of Scripture is closed that you and I are not waiting for a new revelation through uh, some dream that you may have tonight or through a hand appearing on the wall and writing some fresh words from heaven. I, I don't expect that. I love the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. And there's a verse in there that goes something like this, What more can he say to you than he's already said in his most excellent word? I'm not minimizing the truth of Scripture. I'm not minimizing the flow of redemptive history. But what I do know is that one of the greatest needs in my life is to experience the presence and power of God through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And that was Jesus' command to His disciples. Wait until that becomes a reality in your life. John's baptism in verse 5, John the Baptist's baptism and Christ's baptism in verse 5 are compared. John baptized, he said, with water, but Christ is coming and will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You'll find that phrase, baptized in or with or by the Holy Spirit, seven times in the New Testament. Six of seven references to being baptized with the Holy Spirit, admittedly a controversial term. Six of seven occasions where that term is used 
it's used in reference to the, the contrast between John and Jesus. John baptized with water. The little Greek uh, uh, conjunction there is, is E-N, we'd say in, but it means with or by water. And the text says that when Christ comes, he's going to baptize in or with the Holy Spirit. It's not the Holy Spirit who does the baptizing. It's Christ who does the baptizing. And the medium he uses is not water. The medium that Christ uses is the presence and power of God's Spirit. Because it's by the Holy Spirit that you and I are united in union, in vital fellowship and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The indispensable element of being a follower of Christ is the Holy Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit that you and I are brought to life in Christ to begin with. Apart from the power of God's Spirit, Ephesians 2 says we're dead in trespasses and sins. Not, as some would say, sick and in need of a physician. That's some theological views. And not basically a good person and just need a boost from time to time. That's another theological position. But Ephesians 2, Paul says we're dead. And the Greek word there is necron, from which we get the word necrosis. It means we're dead and decaying. And suddenly the Spirit of God comes into our lives and resurrects us, makes us alive in Christ, gives us eyes to see the kingdom of God, gives us ears to hear the call of Christ through the preaching and the sharing and the proclamation of the gospel. Ezekiel 36 says it this way. He takes out our stubborn heart, our our selfishly inclined, sin-dominated, stubborn hearts, and He gives us a new heart. And He puts His Spirit within us. And He gives us an inclination toward obedience. Whereas we loved sin, now we love righteousness. We're not sinless by no means. We still have the remnants of indwelling sin a few Sundays back, December the 17th, Dr. Young preached on God's faithfulness and the title of the sermon was The Latter Years. It's not that my memory is that great. It's just that that's what some of the grace groups are using. And I had to outline it and so on, and I just did that yesterday. That's why it's so fresh. But one of the things he talked about in the sermon is that in the latter years, God's faithfulness does not preclude an ongoing battle with sin. No, sin is still present, but... Whereas we were dead, we're alive in Christ. Whereas we loved sin, now we love righteousness. And apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll still, still be dead and sick. Apart from the Holy Spirit, our worship is lifeless. Our service and ministry from Christ is spiritually impotent and in vain. All of those processes, all the, the worship and ministry and sharing of the gospel, all of those things are empowered and energized by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So I'd suggest to you in the first Wednesday night of a new year that one of my greatest needs this year is, is uh, not to exercise more. I do need to do that. Not to watch my diet. I need to do that. This past year, I was fully committed to what I call the seafood diet. I can tell by your laughter you're familiar with that diet. I need to do those things. I need to spend more quality time with my family, and more time with my friends if I had any. Um, I need to organize. You should see my study. It, it looks like Katrina blew through there. 
Um, if any of you are old enough to remember the odd couple, Felix and Oscar, my study next door looks like Oscar. I mean, I've, you know, Andy Rooney, you've seen 60 Minutes in the background of Andy Rooney. I need to get more organized. There's no doubt about that. But let me tell you, the greatest need in my life to love my wife, to rear my children, to serve the Lord at Gracie Van is to constantly experience the presence and power of God's Spirit because anything else is just treading water. Years ago, I had a, a seminary professor. He was an Englishman by the name of Reginald Barnard. And he said the church is like a moped. Now, this is, you know, uh, this is going to date some of us. I don't even know if they still make mopeds or not, but in the old days, um, <laughs> the old days, uh, m- mopeds, you know, you could pedal them, but they also had a gas-powered engine. You familiar with that? And uh, he said the church is like a moped. When she is filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, she sails along. But when she is not, she has to pedal like mad. I tell you, there are times in my life where I feel like I am pedaling like mad. And I need to be refreshed, renewed, and revitalized by the presence and power of God's Spirit. The command of Christ, verses 4 and 5, I think make an argument for the Holy Spirit being one of our greatest needs. Secondly, the concern of the disciples in verses 6 and 7. You you notice they posed the question, so when they'd come together, verse 6 says they were asking Him, asking Christ, saying, Lord... Is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or epochs or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. They were concerned about the restoration of Israel's political, spiritual future. They were longing for a restored monarchy. They were looking for another David to come and set up his throne in Jerusalem and liberate them from Roman tyranny and domination. They were looking for an earthly, temporal kingdom. Prior to uh, Palm Sunday, when our Lord comes uh, into Jerusalem, the final time on Sunday, He would be crucified on Friday. In Luke chapter 19, they were asking among themselves, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The question they're asking is, are you going to set, are you going to be a king? Are you going to be like David? Are you going to be like Solomon? Is Israel going to once again rise to its political and national prominence. Jesus would enter Jerusalem not to enthrone Himself. He would enter Jerusalem to die, to be crucified. He would come in not on a, not on a steed or a stallion. He would come in on, a, on the donkey as an emblem of peace. He would come in not to sit on a throne. He would come in to sacrifice Himself. On the way to Jerusalem in Matthew 20, there's an argument among the disciples about who's going to be the greatest. He'd been with them three and a half years. And they're they're concerned about, am I going to get to sit on the right hand or am I going to get to sit on the left hand? They were concerned about where they were going to sit around the round table when Jesus came in and set up His throne in His kingdom. They did not understand. And now after the crucifixion and resurrection, just prior to the ascension of Christ, In verses 9, 10, and 11, they're posing that question again. Lord, are you going to um, restore the kingdom to Israel now? Is this what we've been waiting on? I'd like to suggest to you that their concerns were still temporal and earthly. They were focused on the Palestinian terra firma, about 120 miles long, about 40 miles wide. 
And I'd like to suggest to you that apart from God's Spirit, I am almost exclusively focused on my own terra firma. I am almost exclusively focused on my life and what's touching me and affecting me. I do not have a kingdom mindset. I do not have a kingdom agenda. And so our great need is evident not only in the command, but in the concern of the disciples and in my concerns. I don't know what you're concerned about tonight, but but I battle an almost incurable selfishness, an almost incurable preoccupation with me. And apart from God's Spirit pulling me back, transforming my mind, my values, my affections through the truth of God revealed in His Word, I am a poor, pitiful sap. I desperately need God to help me through the power of His Spirit. There's a a little reference in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the rebuilding of the temple after the Babylonian exile had stalled. And and, um, they were concerned about whether or not they were going to be able to finish the temple. And the Lord speaks through the prophet Zechariah. And He says this to a meager handful of people. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by my Spirit, says the Lord. Let me tell you, that's still true in my life. I can't pull off anything on my best day. I desperately need the help of God's Spirit. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of English preachers of yesteryear, said the Holy Spirit is the very breath of God's people. Well, not just the command or the concern, but notice finally and quickly this evening in verse 8, our greatest need is evident because of the challenge that Christ places before us. In verse 8, they're concerned about one thing, and he's concerned about another. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Verse 8 is basically the outline of the book of Acts, if you we're concerned about that kind of thing. They're going to share the gospel in Jerusalem all the way up to Acts 6, and then, then it's going to spill over into Samaria and Acts chapter uh, 8 and 9, and then it's going to go to the ends of the earth all the way to Rome by the end of chapter 28. They're concerned about um, earthly things, and Jesus is actually concerned about their bearing witness to Him, about their being a witness. And I think that's probably the main purpose of God's Spirit coming into our lives, is that you and I would bear witness of Him. We would bear witness of Him in the ordinary course of events, in ordinary relationships, in ordinary places, where you live and where you work, and in your home and family. Some Sundays ago, Dr. Young made the statement um, that our families often are the real crucible in which we experience our, our um, most trying times. Boy, isn't that true? Isn't that true? If I would be any kind of witness for Christ among family and friends, the Lord's going to have to help me because there's just too much of me, too much of me to bear any kind of a winsome or effective witness. I'm concerned about New Year's resolutions. Christ is concerned about His bearing witness through me. I'm concerned about temporal earthly issues. Um, I'm concerned about Florida beating 
Ohio State so that Jim will buy me lunch and me not buy Jim's lunch. I can tell you this, if I buy Jim's lunch, we're going to Crystal. Is there any Crystal still open in the city of Memphis? Um, but the Lord is concerned about me bearing a witness for Him. The, the term um, filled with the Spirit is first introduced, so far as I can tell, in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, the day of Pentecost. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the outcome of their being filled with the Holy Spirit is they bore witness of Christ. It's used about six or seven other times in the book of Acts. It's used in Acts chapter 4. The church is beginning to be persecuted. They were feeling pressure. And when they gathered together to pray, they said, Lord, just give us boldness to speak for Christ. And Acts 4.31 says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God with boldness. In every reference in the book of Acts where it mentions the disciples being filled with the Spirit, it is in a witnessing context. It's in a context of bearing witness for Christ. So if you and I this year will be effective witnesses, consistent witnesses, if you and I will be wholehearted worshipers of a risen and reigning Christ, it will be because God has produced that and accomplished that in our lives by the presence and power of of His Holy Spirit. Our greatest need, I think it's Acts chapter 1, just to constantly be refreshed, revitalized, and renewed by the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. So far as I know, Christianity is the only religion, the only body of doctrine, if you will, that claims that the God we worship and adore also fills the heart of the worshiper with His presence and with His Spirit. What a marvelous, marvelous reality that you and I have been bought by the blood of Christ, inhabited and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. One final thing and we're done. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, um, some, um, some months back, I began to notice some kind of strange furniture appearing outside the door of the church offices. It looked like... Um, it looked like furniture from the, the Old Testament temple, the Old Testament tabernacle. And as it turns out, Cindy Cole, I think someone at Grace, made, uh, made furniture of a replica of the Old Testament temple and tabernacle for something that they're going to be studying in Amazing Grace Land. What a terrific ministry that is, by the way. And, um, and I, you know, I started thinking about that, um, how God's presence filled that temple. Well, you know, the New Testament says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's come to dwell in us. Christ is not coming back after brick and mortar. He's coming back after flesh and bone. Real people like you, real people like me, whose salvation He has purchased by His blood whose salvation He has guaranteed by His resurrection. And to make it all real and vital, He has said, I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit to fill your life. May He fill us and empower us this coming year as we seek to serve Him with joy and gladness. Fathers, we bow before You tonight. We are so thankful and grateful for the marvelous gift of salvation and every aspect of salvation from the forgiveness of sins from being declared righteous in your sight, from the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, from the indwelling power and presence of your Spirit. We are 
a grateful people, humbled to know all that you've accomplished for us in Christ, all that you will yet do for us because of Christ. I pray in this coming year that we would have an abiding sense of our dependency, abiding sense of our need, and that you would continue to meet our spiritual needs through the presence of your Holy Spirit. For this we pray, for this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.